Uh, it's good having you here. Uh, my name is Brian, for this is your first time, um, and I'm the preacher that goes long, so just be prepared to be here for a while. It'll be great. If you have your Bibles, take Mark, or not Mark, the book of Luke, chapter 5. Uh, the last couple of weeks I've been gone. Uh, two weeks ago I was up at Hume Lake in California, um, preaching at a, at a camp there and saw great things happen. And last week I was in Massachusetts, Hume Lake bought a camp out there. Um, I was there, I just got back yesterday. Um, but I experienced something, and I'm hoping that by some groans that there means that there's some of you that understand this. I experienced something called a kidney stone. Yes! Pardon my French, those suck. They hurt. And you hear people say, it's worse than labor. I don't know if it is because I've never done that either and I don't want to, but I just figure, man. And then the doctor, this is, I didn't like this part. And he comes and he goes, yes, it's a kidney stone. I was fine with that. He goes, it's only one millimeter as if I'm like, wuss. And I said, no, it's not. It's the size of a fist covered in razor blades. I mean, you have no clue what you're talking about. So I got to experience that, but it, it lasted 90 minutes, the worst pain I've ever experienced in my life, and then got right back to preaching. So God was faithful. I just figured he didn't want me to preach Monday night, so I kept going on Tuesday. So other than that, great trip. Man, Massachusetts is great. Kidney stones, humidity, woo! <laughs> Thankful for California. We may not have water, but we don't have humidity, so that's fine. <laughs> and brown is the new green. So let's pray. And we'll, uh, we'll jump into this. <laughs> Jesus, we give you thanks. And uh, I needed that last song to get me right. It's so easy to focus on things that, uh, things that are going on or things I don't agree with or uh, things I'm frustrated about. And then to come back to holy, holy, holy. Jesus, it's always been about you. And God, if we ever get tired of giving you praise... There's not, a message, there's not a problem with you or the message. There's a problem with us. And so I pray that you'd continue to reveal yourself more and more to us. That you would blow us away and that it would cause us to want to love you more and that you would reveal yourself more and we'd want to love you more and that you would just continually take us deeper and deeper with you. You are so worthy of praise. If we think about it, the angelic beings have been singing that. And the saints who've gone before us have been singing that since, they, since they've known you. God, they have gotten tired of it yet. And so, God, may we never get tired of that, just giving you praise. And so I pray that as we open your word, God, that you would convict us, encourage us, whatever's needed, whatever's needed to draw us into a tighter relationship with you and to make us look more and more like Jesus. So, God, we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. In Luke chapter 5, verse 1, the first, three, the first three words of that verse stood out to me. We put a big box around them. On one occasion, it doesn't say on some special day, it doesn't say on a religious holiday. It doesn't say during a quiet time. It doesn't say while they're in the synagogue. It doesn't say on a Sabbath. It just says on, a, on one occasion. On one occasion, Jesus shows up. And it made me stop. Here's why I did it. This, this, and this isn't like, oh, prepare this for, for purposes. No, this is just me hanging with God. Here's why I stood out. Am I paying attention for God in the day-to-day on one occasion? Or am I just focused on him when it comes to quiet times and church times? Quiet times and we come together on Sunday, sing some songs. But the rest of my day, am I trying to be be purposed in trying to hear him, trying to notice him, to be involved in this relationship with him? Because friends, honestly, Jesus did not have to come, did not have to die on a cross, come back from the dead, did not have to beat sin and hell and death, did not have to do any any of those things for me in order that I can read some religious book, say some prayers, and attend a group where we sing songs to a God that maybe we don't know that well. 
He didn't have to come for that. But why did he come? To draw us in to relationship with him. Not just special days, not just special moments, but all day, every day, every minute of every day. Because here's what happens. When you watch CNN, when you watch Fox, it's hopeless, right? You watch the news, and some of you have bought into it. You're thinking, ah, vote this person in, vote this person out. Jesus is on the throne So maybe we need to stop reading the blogs that defend our opinion and get back in the word that actually changes lives. Jesus is on the throne, friends. He's never sat back and went, what do I do now? What do I do? I'll get my people to share all their opinions. No, 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 what am I gonna do? No, Jesus has already done it. I've read the end. He wins. So because he wins, he's won. He's in charge. He didn't come just so I could have a good little quiet time and I could read some Bible and sing some praise songs. He came that I could be reconciled to him, that I could be in relationship with him. He came that we could have this relationship with him that will absolutely revolutionize and change us from dead to living beings. Because guys, God's hobby is not to change us from bad people to good. God does the miraculous and takes dead people and makes them alive. That's what God does. I like that on one occasion. That's how Luke starts off chapter five. Hey, on one occasion. What day was it? I don't remember. Just on a day. This certain time. On one occasion. While the crowd was pressing in on him. To hear the word of God. That's why they came. It doesn't say they came for healings, even though I'm guessing that maybe some in the crowd were there just for the stuff. But there was something about when Jesus taught that people paid attention. There was something about when Jesus would teach that people just went, man, he, te- he doesn't teach like our religious leaders. He teaches as one who has authority. There's something about what he's saying. It's almost like he knows what he's talking about. But he's teaching the word of God. Guys, when's the last time it, it made you stop in your tracks? To open this, or you're on your phone, scroll through it, thumb up, move, 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 slide it, and go, these are the very words of God. Well, Brian, I don't have time for it. Oh, you're too busy. Because in Revelation chapter 2, now this is why I don't suggest this. I was having a quiet time in Revelation. I don't know why I tried that. It just didn't work super great. But I want to go through the churches, the seven churches. I sit there and go, okay, God, you've called me to lead a certain part of the ministry here at the church. I want to make sure that when I see you, I just hear all these glowing remarks rather than, hey, I know this. I know you're facing this, but I got like 10 things. I don't like what you're doing. And I thought, I don't want to do that. So he gets to Thyatira. And in chapter two, verse, verse 18, it says this. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the son of God. And I stopped. This was about three or four months ago. I stopped. I went, wait a minute, so right now, I am holding the very words of the Son of God. And I just had to stop there, and I just started writing in my journal. I cannot believe that I am holding the very words of the Son of God. This book that for some reason, think about it, God created everything in six days, rested on the seventh. But he took 1,500 years, three different languages, three different continents, From authors that were kings to peasants, God took so much time to pen out this book that we could have his words 
that we could understand his heart. We could understand his will, at least parts of it. We could understand what he wants us to do. Right here, we are opening up and paying attention to the very word of God. And I had to pause and go, oh, how often do I approach this book? With with this humility saying, God, I don't want to defend my own opinion. I don't want to read something and go, I knew it backed up what I thought. God, I want to go into this knowing your truth, not to push my agenda on anyone else, just your truth. And God, wherever it is that I'm wrong in this, please just convict me because I don't want my opinion. I don't want at the end of my life to go, God, Brian, you preached a lot, but you preached a lot of your own stuff. All I did was call you to teach my truth. Man, it's humbling. They got together to hear the word of God. So if this is your first time, and maybe this is your first time at church ever, or maybe you've come back, like maybe you had this experience happen. You ever notice the crisis always invites us back? It's like the crisis going, you want to pay attention, this is going to get hard, I want God. So you come back, maybe you're doubting, <gasps> how dare we bring up the word in the church? That if we're all really honest, we've gone through seasons or are going through a season of doubt. You know what that's called? It's just owning our faith. We work through the doubts and we become our own follower of Jesus. Maybe you're confused or irritated. Maybe you already have all the answers. Maybe you're a legalist. Wherever we're at in the journey, are we coming in to hear the word of God? Or to just get through something to say, oh, I did that for the week. Guys, that's why it's like so humbling. I was just sitting there going, God, I don't know how to do this. I mean, how am I supposed to in 95 minutes? I'm just joking. I'm not going to go that long. I'm glad you didn't laugh right when I said it. That's like, oh, they're going for it. That's good. How do I explain God in like 40 minutes? How am I trying to get them to understand you? Gosh, it's it's this impossible task. And that's what I do every time I open this. It's going, I can't do this in a way that's honoring to you. That really paints a full picture of you. These people came together for the purpose of what? There's this massive crowd. They came to for what purpose? To hear Jesus teach the word of God. Goes on. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake by the fishermen. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So they, they're done with their work for the night. Getting into one of the boats. He didn't even ask. He didn't walk up to Simon and go, hey, can I borrow your boat? Don't you hate it when Jesus doesn't ask if he can interrupt? (laughs) Don't you hate that? Like your life's going great. You just went through your day. It's all done. And then Jesus interrupts. And you're like, ah. It's weird that no one got up to Jesus going, what are you doing in the boat? You just let him get in the boat. Why? There's this massive crowd. They're there to see her. They are there to hear him preach. Of course, you can let him get in the boat. But at some point, you just kind of go, why my boat? I was going to go home. I was going to check Facebook. I got things to do. It's lunchtime. No, there he is. Jumps in the boat. Doesn't even ask for permission. Getting into one of the boats, which is Simon's. He asked him to put out a little, a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, is Jesus like this prima donna? He's like, I don't want to teach from the land anymore. I want to preach from a boat. Simon, let me, not let me. I'm going to get in your boat. Push me out a little further. Why would Jesus do that? Isn't it great that we have a God who understands acoustics? 
Isn't that great? We understand we have a God who says, hey, I know that sound will bounce off of water, not sink into it. I know that if I go out further, when I speak, my voice will bounce off the water and more people will hear what I have to say. Very practical. It's like when people sit, some people say, this is why he was trying to tell him this about God, that God is over the waters. I was like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. Here's what he did. Hey, they can't hear me. There's too many people, so let me go out further. Hey, now you can hear me better, right? Yeah, I can hear you. Then he keeps going. So you have a practical God, too. He's not always just doing things. Hey, I'm just going to do this. It makes no sense. Let's just do this. No, we have a practical God also. So picture it. Jesus in a boat, pushed out a little further. People are listening to what he has to say. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, that's where somebody's sitting there going, Brian, apply that. <laughs> Shut up. Okay, so here we go. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I've been in youth camps for a couple of weeks. It's hard to remember where I'm at. Okay. And when he, <laughs> when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out, into the, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Like Jesus, hey, go. I know it's the middle of the day. Any fishermen in here? Anybody? No. Okay, good. Well, this doesn't make sense then. We might as well move on. Okay. <laughs> Did anybody ever try it with Grandpa growing up? There you go. That's why you don't do it anymore. Okay, so you, you go. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so he's always like, hey, Brian, we're going to get up at four in the morning. I'm like, seriously? In the morning? Are we having breakfast? Yeah, I'll make you something. He's like, throw me a bone. Doesn't even matter. Say, like, we're going to go fishing. Four in the morning. I don't even care that much. Even the fish are sleeping. So we get four in the morning. Why? Because that's when they're supposed to bite. You're supposed to go super early, super quiet. Water's cool. If it's too hot on top, then they go, deep, they go deeper. They won't. Anyway, he goes through the whole expl- explanation. I could care less. Four in the morning, I'm just sitting there going, this is for you, Grandpa. I am not liking this right now. So imagine this is your job. Okay? You go out. You make no money for the day. Nothing. Not one cent. You don't catch anything. You come back in, you're a little frustrated, right? If, you, if you're a businessman and you go out and you make nothing, you're a little defeated by the time you get back. So picture Simon doesn't catch one thing. He even has partners. Nobody's caught one thing. They're cleaning their nets. They're getting ready to go home, have some lunch, take a shower, and look at Facebook. They're getting ready to just go home, kind of relax until they get up early, early morning to go do it again. And Jesus goes, hey, Simon, I've got this great idea. Just put out into the deep water and throw the nets. Let's go again. And if you're Simon, aren't you sitting there going, why is he always talking to me? Like, why my boat? Why not, like, talk to James or John? They're like, they're sons of thunder. They're excited. They're passionate. I just want to go home. He says, ah, we worked all night and caught nothing. And then maybe for some of us, that Jesus is asking you to stay faithful in the mundane. And our first response is this. God, I've tried that all night. It feels like it's your, you've been up all night. And for some, it's not all night. It's, God, I've been doing that for years. There's nothing. I mean, you don't see anything. Okay, some of you, maybe some of your marriages are just like, oh man, they've just been stretched. It's almost ready to break. And you're like, I've been doing it. And nothing's changing. And here comes Jesus going, hey, let's keep trying the same thing. Maybe you're in a ministry. You're sitting there going, does it ever end? 
I mean, I'm trying to help these people and I'm trying to show them Jesus and it just seems like the numbers get bigger and bigger and it's like, God, what am I doing? And you get discouraged, like, why even try tomorrow? And Jesus is going, let's just do the same thing. Come on, just do it again. Maybe some of your parents are sitting there going, gosh, I just want my kid to know Jesus. And I've told him and I've shared and I've tried to model what it looks like and nothing's changed. It's kind of like it's hopeless and Jesus is going, just one more. Come on, one more time. There's this relationship that's been broken and you've tried to heal it and fix it and you're like, I got nothing left. And Jesus is saying, just one more time. What if today is on one occasion? What if that's what today is? Guys, I know we can just look at the fact, okay, it's failing, nothing's changing, I can't see anything turning about in any direction that's absolutely positive. Why keep going? Because on one occasion, Jesus showed up on a normal day and looked at Simon and said, hey, let's try this. I already did that. Nothing came from it. But then watch Simon's response. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will. And I stopped right there. But because you said so, I'll do it. Because you said so, I don't see how it's gonna work. I completely disagree with you because I've noticed I've tried it, nothing's changed. I've tried it, nothing's changed. But because you say to do it, I'll do it. Which comes down to this. You have to answer the question. Is Jesus worth it? Is he worth it? I'm not asking, hey, are the people involved worth it? I'm not asking that. That for some of you, you're so tired of the people involved in it, you're saying, no, they're not worth it. The ministry you're involved in, the discouragement that you're experiencing, you said, oh, nothing's changing. And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. I'm not asking, are the people worth it? I'm asking, is Jesus worth it? Simon's response in that moment had nothing to do with the fish, had nothing to do with the crowd, it had everything to do with him answering the one question, is Jesus, is Jesus worth it to do the same thing again, even though I don't see how it's going to be any different? Is he worth it? But at your will, or but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Doesn't that seem just a little bit dramatic? It's just like, oh man, you're a drama king. You're one of those. I mean, it's a lot of fish, but to sit there and go, there's a lot of fish. I'm a sinful man. That just seems a little bit weird to me. Or is it? Because it sounds a whole lot like one of our Old Testament passages. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. You don't have to. Isaiah chapter 6. Here's Isaiah. This is one of those days. It starts off with, in the year that King Uzziah died. Pretty na- It's a national tragedy. In the, t- in the year that King Uzziah died, seven words that say that there are times where life just stinks. There are just things that are difficult in life. So, I mean, this is a big deal. Like we can look at the things that we're facing and go, this has been the hardest year of my life. Brian, this has been the hardest three years of my life. I'm guessing that this is a national tragedy. And here, Isaiah spends seven words to talk about the national tragedy, then the rest of the time to talk about the glory of God. 
We can always just focus on the problem and think that that's going to fix it, or we can focus on the glory of God. He says, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. At the sight of God, Isaiah's response is, I'm ruined. I'm going to die. Why? What does he say? Woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Doesn't that sound exactly like what Simon just got done saying? Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And here Isaiah is saying, I'm ruined. I'm a mortal man and I've looked upon a holy God and I cannot live. That's his first response. I bring up this, I just think, guys, there should be this holy fear of God. And people say, I've never been afraid of God. Then I'm convinced you never met him. No, I'm convinced of it. Because it's not natural for me to not be afraid of him. Just think of his size. Guys, I'm afraid of dentists. I'm afraid of kidney stones. But when we say, I'm not afraid of God. You know why I'm not afraid of God, but I am? I'm afraid of God because of his holiness, his grandeur, his majesty. I'm not afraid of God because he's invited me not to be afraid. Think about it. Why is it that Jesus always has to keep saying over and over, don't be afraid? If we're naturally not going to be afraid of God. He says it later on when we get to Luke chapter 5. When Jesus is on the mountaintop, Moses and Elijah show up. There's Peter, James, and John. Jesus' face is shining like the sun. This is one of those holy moments. They're terrified by what's happening. The Father has spoken from the cloud. And all of a sudden, Jesus has to go up and touch them and say, what? Hey, don't be afraid. When Jesus walks on water, he hears his disciples freaking out because it's in the middle of the night because that's when your mind plays tricks on you. They're freaking out, going, it's a ghost, we're going to die. And what's he say? Don't be afraid. He said, well, I mean, after the resurrection. Why is it that John, the beloved disciple, the one that leaned in on Jesus during the Last Supper, why is it that when John saw Jesus in all of his glory, in the book of Revelation chapter 1, at the sight of Jesus, fainted as though dead until Jesus came up and touched him and said, what? Don't be afraid. Guys, we've turned him into a wuss. We've turned Jesus into a wuss. And we're there to help you, Jesus, because you know you're getting older. <laughs> Woo! I mean, you've been doing this a long time. So I got your back. His response should be what our response is when we first meet him. His response, should be what our, our, our response should be when he reveals himself in some way, new, powerful way. That response should be what drives me to my knees and thinking, why would you, a holy God, want to be with me? And to hear him say, Brian, don't be afraid. I'm invited into that. But look at those words, depart from me. The fact that Jesus, who's God in a bod, is standing right in front of him is proof that God never wants that. 
He never wants me to go, I can't be around you. God came, the whole reason he came is so that I could be with him. That's the whole reason. That's what he wanted. Guys, it's always, always been about relationship with God. It's always been about that. Simon's first response, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Verse 9, for he, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, what? Don't be afraid. Oh, okay. I thought if I was afraid, it'd be better. Don't, don't be afraid I got that wrong. Okay, I'll remember that next time. Do not be afraid. Then he says this. From now on, you'll be catching men. This is what you're going to do. That just sounds weird. If you don't know the whole context of it, it's like, I'm going to be what? You're going to be catching men? What? Is that like some weird youth group game? Seriously, like catch men? Like here's the fishies, here's the fisher people. And you go catch them with a net. Then you bring them in. It sounds like youth group. Then you got them. I'm just joking. You know what's happening. It just sounds weird. Is it possible? Here comes Jesus going, I don't want you to just, hey, watch me do some tricks and then pull back into your normal life. I actually want to pull you into what it is that I want you to do. What you know how to do, God says, I will take what you know how to do because I've given you what you know how to do and I will take it and give divine purpose to it. I will use it for my glory. I will use this for my glory. I'm going to make something bigger out of what it is that you say you know how to do. I'm going to give it purpose. You're going to be blown away by this. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah says, woe is me. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I've seen the Lord. Now watch in verse 6 what happens. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the, from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Of course it has. It hurt. If something's on fire and you touch my mouth with it, dang it, I know what that is. But you notice that it says he touched his lips. And I don't think there's by accident. Here's why. When Isaiah comes out and says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among, among a people who, who also have unclean lips. And then God says, okay, I'm going to take care of that which you are ashamed of. I'm going to take care of that sin, that specific thing. So he touches his lips. He could have touched his face. He could have touched his kidney. I mean, he could have touched whatever. He, he touches his lips. It's like God here comes saying, I will come to you because you can't come to me. I will take care of that which I need to take care of in order for us to have relationship. I will do that. You say, well, it's the seraphim. Seraphim, do not do anything outside of what it is that God commands them to do. This was of the will of God. Then watch the last part of that, the last part of that altercation says this. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Your guilt. Isn't regret horrible? That's what we're going to look at tonight. You see, you see on your title it says, Too Good to Be True, Part 1. That's today. Part 2 is tonight. Regret's powerful and is destructive. You know that one thing, if you could take it back, that one decision that's just kind of jacked up your life a little bit, and it's been going on for years because of that one thing. 
Or for some of you, it's that one thing that nobody else knows about, but every single time the word conviction comes up, or every single time the the concept of guilt comes up, or every other time when you hear that Jesus paid for us and that thing pops up and you just sit and go, God, I'm so sorry. Forgetting that the Bible says as far as the east is from the west, so God has removed our transgressions from us. The guilt that you're experiencing is not from God. It's the guilt that we either have for ourselves because we did that, or the enemy just keeps throwing it back at you. But God's saying, I forgot what you're talking about. It's paid for. It's over. Did you notice Isaiah's prayer also? This one's hard for me. You ever get in trouble? Remember when you're in school? A few people did something and the whole class got in trouble? Remember that? Like, guys, you're a team. I'm like, I'm not a team. I don't play with them. I don't like them. All of you are losing recess. What? Pulling out pencils to make a spear. Not for the teacher, for the kid. It's like, I'm not with him. Don't you ever feel like you're going to do that with God sometimes? God, I'm not being like them. I'm I'm for you. I'm not acting like them. Like, you know, this world that's all broken and jacked up. I'm being a good boy. What's Isaiah say? Oh, crud. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He says, I'm a sinner. Guys, I thought... I wish I kind of got this earlier on. I thought the longer you walked with Jesus, the easier it got. You know, that you got a little better at it. You know when you practice Christianity? You're supposed to be, like when you practice in a sport and you keep practicing, practicing, you get better at it. And then as a follower of Jesus, like I'm with you, I'm walking, why am I so sensitive to this sin now? It's like it, I drive myself nuts and this is kind of where I've come away with understanding. In Romans chapter 7, the second half, when Paul's like, I, okay, this is just the summarizing of it. He's like, I drive myself crazy. Because the things I don't want to do, I'm doing those things. The things I don't want to do, or the things I want to do, I don't. It's like, I, I don't know what to do about this. Guys, I'm convinced the more we walk in holiness with God, the more sensitive we are to the things in our life that are not pleasing to him. So have you ever been discouraged about that? It's like, oh, I'm not saying, this is not, this is not reason that we can just say, well, I have a weakness, it's a struggle, so I guess I'll never get over it, so I can just keep doing it. Ha, ha, ha. This is not a loophole. No, we keep moving forward in holiness. But understand, as we move forward in this walk that Jesus has called us to, that we will become more and more sensitive to the things that are not pleasing to him. It's not failure. We're moving forward. It's actually something good. I look at that and go, God, am I... I feel like I'm just messing up all the time. Why is it always when I'm driving? Why is it when that person cuts me off, it's wrong, but when I do it, it's necessary? <laughs> Back to Luke chapter 5. Jesus says, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. And followed him. Now here's the thing. If you take Luke chapter 5, you go to the end of Mark, or Matthew chapter 4. And I've preached Matthew chapter 4 before. And they left their nets and followed. They left their nets. James and John left their nets and their daddy in the boat and followed. I've never connected these two. Cheryl Gardner came to me after, after the last service. And I went, <gasps> my head just exploded. Kind of. Just in, symbolically. But I was just like, wow. This is incredible. 
They just had the greatest catch of their lives. Boats are sinking. Guys, this is like hitting the lottery. This is that big business deal that you've had. I mean, this is more money than you've ever seen before. And Jesus says, hey, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Okay, come follow me. I'm going to give you something to do. You know, I'm the one who just said, hey, let's go out in the time when it's not supposed to work. You're going to catch so many fish, it's going to blow your mind. And as they come in, it's like this. Jesus gives the invitation. They can look at their boats and what they've, what they've made. They can look at their nets, all these fish. They can look at this monopoly of owning the fishing business. And then they look at Jesus and they have to answer the question, is Jesus worth it to give this up, to just go with him and he's not telling me where I'm going? Woo! Right here, business deal of the decade. And Jesus says, it's your choice. Leave it and follow me. Can I get it back later? He never says, hey, follow me, I'll give you more. He says, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Notice how it always comes down to this. Is Jesus worth it? Is he worth it? I'm not asking. I said it before, I'm not asking. Is your spouse worth it? He's like, depends on the day. Are your kids worth it? Depends on the hour. <laughs> I'm not asking are those people that you minister to, are they worth it? I'm not asking is your job worth it? I'm not asking, no, 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 none of that, none of that. None of that. Personal. Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus too good to be true? I don't remember if I said the last time I teach or taught this, but I was having this conversation with a young adult over the phone. I was driving back from Central California to come down here, get ready to leave for the next trip. And I don't know if you've been to the Central Valley and you're driving down the 99. Not a lot to do. So we had a great conversation. It was like two hours. I'm like, woo, that went by quicker than I thought. And as, I, as we're talking through things and she's bringing up regrets of the past and talking about things she'd done in the past and she's a total lover of Jesus now the past two years, I'm like, I can't believe where she's come out in two years in a rock with Christ. And I'm just talking through it and I, I'm just talking about the gospel and she's listening and she's like, yeah, but it's too good to be true. And I went, that's the gospel. Guys, if we never pull back and go, man, it's too big. It's too good to be true. We don't have a grasp of the gospel. While I was an enemy of God, God came for me, took my place because of what I've done, died in my place, came back from the dead, jacking up death, sin, and hell so he could have me while I declared myself an enemy of God. That's what he did for me. And that's what he's done for us. I look at that and go, too good to be true. Too good to be true. And as she kept saying it, I don't know if I can get it. It just doesn't seem like it. And I think I shared this last time, but just as a reminder, that some of you, you've accepted forgiveness for the purpose of salvation, but have you accepted it for the purpose of freedom? Let me ask you again. You've accepted forgiveness for the purpose of salvation, but have you accepted forgiveness for the purpose of freedom? Freedom. That regret paid for. When you surrendered your life to Christ, 
declared justified, declared holy, made righteous. That when God looks on you, he sees righteous and holy, not because of you and not because of me, but it's been imputed to us. Too good to be true. So here it is. Jesus gives the invitation. Decade. Deal of the decade. Not sure where we're going. What do they do? They left everything and followed him. Because at the end of the day, they said this, Jesus, you're worth it. You're worth it. Is it that kind of intimate relationship with Jesus? Jesus, you are so worth it. You're so worth it. I cannot believe that God is that crazy about us. He's worth it. And what blows my mind is he's looked at us and said, so are you. The cross is proof. I'm not worthy. But God deemed us worth it to have us back. I pray that today we're absolutely blown away by Jesus again and his gospel. That we actually look at the gospel message and go, gosh, that is too good. That is too good to be true. To just sit back and go, I can't believe God. I get you. You get this. And Jesus says, I chose you before the foundation of the world. It has nothing to do with your conduct. It has everything to do with my, con- with my character. He chose you before you could choose him. He chose you before you were born. He wants you. Too good to be true? Yeah. Tonight at Claremont, what do we look at? Part two. What if you have given up and you have that regret? Same title. Too good to be true. Can't believe all that he has done for us. Would you do me a favor? Would you stand? We stand together in unity as a family. This will, be our, this will be our closing prayer. If you want prayer after the service, right to my left, you're right downstairs, right to where this door is. There's people I would love to pray with you, pray over you, see great things happen. We'll trust God with the results. So that's, that's open for you if you'd like it. Let's pray, okay? God, I pray that we would be able to answer the question, is Jesus worth it? And to say, oh, absolutely. Jesus, you are too good to be true. Your gospel is too good to be true. God, I pray that we'd strive to meet you every day, all day. Look for you every day, all day. God, I cannot believe. I cannot believe. It blows my mind. Who you are and that you want us. God, I'm a sinful man, but I thank you that you came for us so that I would never have to say to you, depart from me. Thank you. And so God, I pray that this week we would live in gratitude, not guilt, that other people would come to know you because we're actually alive, that we'd minister in our zip code, that's our mission field, and we'd see you do the incredible and the impossible. God, you are worth it. So in the rest of this day, the rest of this week, and everything you do in our lives, to you be all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor. For you alone are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. Love you more than you know. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.